This is episode 208 with doctor of physical therapy, endurance runner, and orthopedic clinical specialist, Mr. Ryan Wooderson. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to features a doctor of physical therapy and orthopedic clinical specialist who focuses on keeping runners healthy. Ryan Wooderson joins us to specifically talk about sleep, what you can expect from just a single night of poor sleep, how to improve your sleep quality and take better naps, and the life-changing effects of great sleep. If you're new to the podcast, you can expect conversations just like this between me and other thought leaders in the running industry. My goal is to elevate your thinking about the sport, help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. Strength Running also has an active YouTube channel with hundreds of videos on how to run longer, strength workouts, how to stay healthy and run with better form, and a lot more. I'd love for you to be our 50,000th subscriber, so go to youtube.com strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And our home base is strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses on topics from strength to injury prevention, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker. They help you analyze your body's data to give you a clear picture of what's going on inside you and then offer science-backed recommendations to improve. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store at insidetracker.com/strengthrunning. We're also supported by Path Projects. They make some of my favorite running gear, including shorts with a lot of pockets, even for your phone. They use innovative, lightweight fabrics that are stretchy, wick sweat, and help you worry about your run instead of your gear. Check out all of their shorts, base liners, shirts, and more at pathprojects.com. Our guest today is Mr. Ryan Wooderson. He owns Long Run Physiotherapy and Performance in Denver, Colorado, and has spent nearly a decade helping athletes get healthy and stay healthy. He has a doctorate of physical therapy from Regis University and completed his orthopedic residency at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's an orthopedic clinical specialist, and his practice focuses on injury prevention and helping athletes perform. In this conversation, we're focusing on how to leverage sleep to improve your running. Sleep is what I consider a performance multiplier, something that has outsized numerous benefits to you as an athlete with little or no drawbacks. Sleep can help reduce your risk of disease and all-cause mortality. It can improve your mood, recovery, adaptation to stress, decision-making ability, muscle power output, and even your tolerance to pain. If we're to achieve our potential, we must solve the problem of getting better, high-quality sleep. Ryan is going to help us do exactly that in this episode. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Ryan Wooderson. All right. Hey, Ryan. Welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. 
So I have been following you on Instagram for some time now, and I just love the content that you put out there, how research and evidence-based you are, and how you really focus on helping runners um, with injuries and with optimizing their training and their performances. And recently, you've been on a real tear with all of the sleep workshops that you've been hosting around the city of Denver. So that's what I want to talk about today, sleep and how we can better optimize it. Yeah. So maybe we can start with some fear, Ryan. Maybe you can scare us and tell us what happens when we don't get the sleep that we desperately need. Fear is an excellent motivator. Um, so the as I've learned more about sleep and talking to my clients more and more about it, I'm, I'm diving in more into my own education with it. And the, the thing that struck me most um, that I have learned is when we're discussing the data of all cause mortality, right? Across any disease uh, that can end a person's life, sleep is the single highest correlated factor among all cause mortality. Poor sleep is the single greatest factor among all of those things. So you're talking. Uh, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, um, stroke, uh, Alzheimer's, things like this, sleep, mental health disorders, sleep underpins every single one of those things and more. Um, and, and I have conversations about this with my clients daily. Um, so it's a really important factor in not just running training. It's, it's huge. But just for your overall health, being able to sleep well, it's massive. I think it's really important to, to talk about issues that you can improve in your training that are really going to improve your running, but then also have all these spillover effects into the rest of your life. And I think strength training is a great example. A lot of runners don't like to do their strength training. I'm kind of in that camp myself, though I understand its value. But the great thing about strength training is that it really helps with longevity, with preventing frailty later in life, and with helping you stay strong and with your balance as you get older, preventing falls and things like that. And so sleep seems to me like one of those things that, yes, it's going to improve your performance, your recovery. It's going to make you into a better runner if you wrap that with good training. But it's also just going to improve your life in untold number of ways, both with preventing your risk of all these different types of diseases, um, but then also just improving how you feel on a day-to-day -day basis. And so you've shared a lot of real specifics about what happens within your body when you go without sleep. I'd love to go into some more detail there and talk about physiologically what is happening in your body when maybe you just get one night of poor sleep. And then maybe we can talk about what happens when maybe you have a week of chronically poor sleep. Yeah. So, uh, new mom and dads, put your earmuffs on because this may or may not apply to you. It's, it's a little tough hearing some of these, these factoids with, uh, a new little one in the house where you just don't have too many options to get sleep. But, um, physiologically, Sleep is, is the great regulator. It, your body and your brain do so much work on themselves when you sleep to repair 
I'm going to use the phrase damage. That seems aggressive, but um, repair damage from the day, a buildup of inflammatory markers, a buildup of stress hormones, a buildup of all the other things that your body needs to get rid of. And these things happen naturally throughout the day. This, this buildup of cortisol, this buildup of, of inflammatory cytokines and things like this. That's a natural process. But like anything else, you build up too many of those things, then it becomes a problem. And sleep is, good sleep is the primary way you can limit from building up too much cortisol, too many, you know, those inflammatory cytokines that build up into, you know, coupled, as you mentioned, with even a good training block, you get bad sleep through a good training block, that well-organized training block is still going to be way harder on your body than it should be because you're not well-rested and your body isn't as recovered as it could be. There's a lot of muscle recovery and protein synthesis and glucose regenesis that happens when you sleep that allows your body to have appropriate energy for that next hard workout or, or next workout at all. Um, you know, you think of having something like a, a 20 mile run, even though that may be technically an easy run, you're still doing like little pieces of micro damage to your tissues. And it's the sleep that precedes and then follows that workout that really allows you to repair that harm done to your body on a microscopic level. Um, so I could talk about the physiology of sleep all day. Um, I mean, as far as it pertains to running and athletes and how it affects them on a regular basis, but it's so vital whether you're in a training block or not for your body to be able to repair itself uh, from a hormone level, from a, a very basic physiological level, from a, a mood level. So it's, it's, the, the biggest underpinning of all of it. Yeah. I like how you also talked about your mood. And I think, you know, we runners, we understand the fact that if we don't sleep well, we're not going to recover from our big long run. That next workout is going to be much more challenging. I'm very much interested in the psychological side of what happens when you don't get a lot of sleep. Everything from, you know, you mentioned how it affects your mood, but it can also have some really interesting effects in terms of lowering your reaction time and how you have a higher uh, amount of perceived pain. So if you go do a workout after a five-hour night of sleep, you probably might perceive that workout to be more stressful or to be more challenging than it might be if you had gotten a full night of good sleep. I'd love to talk more about that psychological side of things and how not getting enough good quality sleep affects not just your muscle recovery, not just your ability to you know recover from a workout, you know, from a, a muscular perspective, but you know, what's happening in your brain? Cause I, I feel like that is a piece that us runners don't think about enough. And when it comes to decision-making ability, when it comes to, um, you know, grit and mental toughness that we need in a race, in a workout situation, how poor sleep can really negatively impact that. So I'd love to hear more. <laughs> the effects are pretty profound. Um, in terms of your mood, again, sleep is the great regulator. There, there are hormones, and I think most people know this, but there are hormones that regulate your mood. And, and just like 
your body repairing you physiologically from a hard workout. Your body repairs you emotionally by regulating those hormones that are most relevant to big mood swings or, or just bringing your mood more towards your personal middle versus allowing those big swings to happen. Um, a lot of research has been done on the effects on exercise in the following day. And the following day, you know, after say a five, nine hours, like seemingly the research tends to make the cutoff less than six hours, right? Like th that's defined as poor sleep. Um, so with a night of poor sleep, less than six hours that next day, you are more likely to be moody because you're, or just not in a great mood because your hormones haven't been regulated as well. And cardiovascularly, the research doesn't have a definitive answer on that. Your, your cardio shouldn't take a huge hit. But the fact is, exactly like you mentioned, your willingness to engage at a deeper, more intense level is going to be blunted quite a bit just because you don't have the capacity to push as hard. Your overall perceived uh, level of exertion is going to be elevated on, on one workout to the next. Say you do, you know, as a simple example, you know, you're doing repeat 400s on a track on, on Tuesday and you did the same workout a month prior, but that month prior you got seven or eight hours of sleep. And then this month you only got five hours of sleep on a scale of effort zero to 10, you know, that first workout where you got seven or eight hours of sleep is going to feel something like it was hard enough to be like, like 400s are supposed to be seven or eight out of 10. But that next one where you don't get that seven or eight hours, you're going to feel something closer to an eight or a nine, right? Or maybe even nine and a half in some cases. And there you're just asking for injury, right? If you're pushing into that zone where you're not feeling your best, you don't have the normal zip that you would typically have. Anytime you get to that level of fatigue, your mechanics change. And when your mechanics change on those big, hard workouts, you're elevating your risk of injury. It's as simple as that. So not only are you not able to push as hard on that big workout after a night of poor sleep, but you're also placing yourself at greater risk biomechanically of having some sort of injury, right? Which may either limit further workouts or, or take you out altogether for a little while. So the downstream effects of poor sleep from one workout to the next can be pretty, pretty significant. I love how you're connecting poor sleep with a breakdown in mechanics. Most runners are thinking about, you know, at the end of a marathon when they're experiencing that level of fatigue. And of course, your mechanics start to break down. You're not as efficient as you were at, at mile two of that marathon. But it's so fascinating to hear how sleep quality and the quantity of your sleep can impact your mechanics and how it will just increase the ability for you to go into a super fatigued state. And we know that those fatigued states are when your mechanics do break down. And, and I also think from a decision-making perspective, you know, you might not be making the wisest training decisions. And, you know, I'm always telling runners that knowledge is a competitive advantage. You make good decisions with your training. You know more about the training process. You're going to become a better runner just because you're going to be smarter about how you go about the training process. 
And it seems to me that lower sleep quantity and quality can really affect your ability to make those wise choices from workout to workout, when to cut a workout, when to maybe push a little bit harder. And so it really is one of these things that is all encompassing and almost reaches its tentacles into every aspect of your training from your recovery to your mechanics, to your decision-making ability and your mood. So it's definitely something that I would label, you know, a performance multiplier. It will help so many things in your life and there's virtually no downside to getting too much sleep or, or am I wrong there? Can you get too much sleep, Ryan? That is an excellent question. (laughs) I don't know if you can get too much. There's a certain amount that is like optimal for every individual. You know, most, most folks of any age uh, and of any participation level should, you know, reside somewhere in that seven to nine hour zone that we've all heard about. Is there such a thing as too much? That is an excellent question. I don't know that I have an answer to that. I, I think you, you as an athlete and as an individual understand what your body needs. So if on some night, you just feel like, man, I just have a, got blitzed by a couple workouts in a row. I need 10 hours, then take 10 hours, right? It's, it's that decision process that you were talking about of listening to your body and what it needs. And if you need to stay in bed for an extra hour, plan that into your day. If you, if your body feels like that's what it needs physiologically, I I don't know the research on this. I'll be honest. I would imagine there's kind of some diminishing returns after about eight or nine hours, nine hours probably, right? Because we get to a certain point in our, our life where we don't require, you know, the, the sleep that infants and toddlers require because their brains are doing so much developmental work. They require 10 to 12 hours a night. We as adults don't require that. So are there uh, benefits to more sleep? Maybe if you feel like your body needs it, I suppose that's, that's totally appropriate. Are you going to, uh, you know, become a substantially better runner sleeping eight hours a night versus sleeping 10 hours a night? Probably not. Yeah. I always found that when I was in peak training for myself, I was an eight and a half to nine hour a guy at night. And and that's really what I needed. And when I was younger, I was so much better at, getting the sleep that I needed. You know, uh, I I know you're a dad, Ryan. I've got three kids myself. Um, I was up at 11 and 12 o'clock last night with my three-year-old. He just wouldn't stay in bed. And so there are those just realities that we have to deal with that prevent us from getting the sleep that we, we definitely need. But man, I look back on my golden days of, you know, running 12 miles a day and sleeping nine hours a night. And it felt, felt so indulgent. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. I was working hard and sleeping hard. Yeah, absolutely. And and life does get in the way. So you have to make accommodations for that. Of course, there's no perfect situation. Um, You kind of have to take the ebbs and flows where they come. But and this is, you know, this is the next conversation. But having a routine that you are in that you don't deviate all that much from is really, really helpful right? So you have the the ebbs and flows of life, whether it's the toddler that won't stay in bed or whatever it might be, or the the work project that just has a deadline on it that has to get done that hasn't been done. We all have that stuff. Those should be, you know, not the norm necessarily. And that's where the routine of sleep comes in, where you should generally within 
probably a 30 minute window, be going to bed and waking up the same time every day of the week, whether it's a Tuesday or whether it's a Saturday. And that routine will kind of just ingrain itself into your lifestyle, really, if you make the effort to do that as best you can. Yeah, and I think endurance runners are creatures of habit and we thrive when we have a great routine that really sets our training and ourselves up for success. Uh, and I do want to talk more about how to get more sleep, how to get better quality sleep. Um, but first, you did mention something a little while back talking about how to evaluate your current sleep state. And, and I think that's maybe a good place to start. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, so there's there's a few different, uh, I would call them standardized outcome measures that can help a person evaluate their current sleep state. So it takes them through uh, a number of questions. Do you feel drowsy throughout the day? Do you fall asleep? Are you closing your eyes during a meeting? Or uh, are you uh, dozing off just sitting in a chair with, with nothing else to do, right? So questions like that that are ranks on a, on a scale of you know, zero to three to stratify your, an individual's sleepiness. And that stratification can determine how much help a person might need, right? Because there's a certain amount that is not pathological. You know, I generally reside, I try to do better. I'm trying to do better currently. I generally reside in the, like the six to seven hour window. But if a person is habitually getting four to five hours or maybe even less a night, that's pathological, right? That's not the stuff we're talking about, but it can help identify like, oh, this is more than just me not sleeping well, this is actually something medical that I need to be dealing with because folks will just suffer through this stuff because they think either they have to, or they think it's normal, or they think they should just, you know, forge ahead and, and grit it out and you know, hustle, 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 whatever. Um, so those outcome measures helps kind of separate, are you just lacking sleep in general, or is this a medical issue that needs to be dealt with by a, provider. Um, those are some of the questions that we'll ask during these workshops. And I can kind of give you some documents to link in your, in your show notes, if you like, so folks can plug into those and kind of do their own, own self-assessment, if that would be helpful. Yeah, sure. I think that would be great. And we'll include some of those resources in the show notes too. And I think we should kind of separate our discussion with, from, you know, the pathological and also the folks who can get good sleep, but just simply aren't for one reason or the other. So if you're sleeping three to four hours a night, yeah, you probably should go talk to your doctor and there might be something going on there. Yeah, this is not the show for you. I'm not the person for you. You need to talk to your medical provider for sure. Right. That That is a very specific issue uh, that could have some underlying issues going on there. And so we would certainly encourage you to go see uh, a medical professional for that. But for everyone else, for people like me who desperately want sleep, uh, who <laughs> aren't getting the sleep that they really would like to, I know a lot of us focus on sleep quantity. I'm only getting seven hours a night, but I really want eight. Can you can we talk a little bit more about sleep quality and, and what we can do to improve that as opposed to quantity? Because often a lot of us who, who are trying, you know, our, our hearts and minds are in the right place. 
we simply can't get more sleep. Maybe we have a little kids at home. Maybe we have work projects, things like that. But what, what can we do to improve the quality of our sleep so that even if we're not sleeping as much as we can, when we are sleeping, it's really helping us? Right. I think to define sleep quality, it helps to understand the different phases of sleep and what they do for your body. There's four different phases. The most important phases for that recovery aspect and to to obtain the quality that a person is looking for are the the final two phases and what's generally about a 90-minute cycle. So you have these three phases that are non-rapid eye movement phases, one, two, and three. They're very, very uh, appropriately named. But the third uh, non-rapid eye movement phase and then the rapid eye movement phase that immediately follows that are the two most restorative phases of sleep where all that really big physiological, uh, neurological heavy lifting is done. Um, those phases generally happen the last couple hours of your sleep cycle or, or actually the last couple hours in the morning. I'll just say that not of your sleep cycle, but of the morning. So if you're not able to improve your sleep quantity, Improving your quality would look something like I always tell folks, it's better to go to bed a little bit later and then sleep a little bit into the morning if you're able to do that versus go to bed early and wake up super early because our circadian rhythms are all just a little bit different, but they're not all that different where again, a lot of that restorative sleep is done mostly in those last couple hours of the morning. And so if you're routinely having to wake up at, for whatever reason at four o'clock in the morning or three 30 or who knows, whatever you're missing most of that restorative sleep period. And that's what gets folks, you know, shift workers experience this or folks who have to get up for early runs on a really consistent basis for family or work reasons or whatever experience this too. They may have gone to bed at eight o'clock the night before and slept until three 30 for seven and a half hours. But again, according to that rhythm that a lot of us are on, you're missing that last couple of hours of most restorative sleep. You're missing the highest quality portion of your sleep. So it's not as if you're only missing the two hours, the 25% of the eight hours that we're looking for. You're probably missing a larger percentage really based on quality, something on the order of even 50% of the quality sleep that you should be getting. Can you train yourself to go to bed at eight o'clock and get up at three 30 in the morning, like your example, and, and actually train your body to be getting that sleep maybe between midnight and three in the morning, or, or is this something where your body is simply not going to respond to that very well? Because you're probably not really designed to be getting up as a human animal at three 30 in the morning anyway. Yeah, definitely the latter. We, we are not designed. Sleep is an evolutionary thing. Uh, we are not designed in our 24 plus hour cycle. We are not designed to wake at three, three thirty in the morning when it is dark outside. We are designed to wake up around the time that it starts to become light or a little bit after that. And that's the, the circadian rhythm, part of the circadian rhythm that I'm referring to. So. Can you train yourself to operate in such a way that you can be mostly functional from eight, you know, getting sleep from eight to three 30? Yeah, you probably can. I'm not saying you couldn't, but could you be given all the same circumstances in a vacuum? 
could you be better off sleeping from nine or 10 to five or six? Absolutely. 100% largely because of when, based on that circadian rhythm, when that quality sleep does happen, you're still missing a large portion of it. If you're waking up at three 30 in the morning, you've got seven and a half or eight hours. You're still missing a good portion of it. Now, what if your problem is not necessarily that you have to get up so early in the morning, but maybe you have trouble going to sleep or you have trouble staying asleep? Are there certain things you can do, whether it's in your bedroom, you know, very specifically, or maybe lifestyle things that you could think about more broadly that could just help you go to sleep faster and actually stay asleep when you have that time? Because if, if we want to talk about pet peeves, it's me when I finally have enough time to sleep and then I can't sleep. And it happens to me every once in a while. It's probably the most annoying thing in the world, right? Especially if you have little kids and you're like, no, now is my time. Finally, finally, <laughs> I made it. Yeah. Oh, my God. If I had a dollar for every time that happened to me, it's true. <laughs> um, so if you're having trouble getting to sleep or if you're having trouble staying asleep, Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes that can be an environmental issue that surrounds your sleep routine, or it can be an anxiety issue. So let's talk uh, environmental first. I tell people the bedroom is for two things and two things only. It's two S's, sleepy time and sexy time, nothing else, right? So if you're doing other things outside of those two as part of your sleep routine, then you need to recalibrate just a little bit. All right. In terms of the environment generally, right. You want to sleep. Your, your body feels best going to sleep when your core temperature is cooler. There's actually cycles of, of temperature changes that our body goes through throughout the day. And part of one, the indicator for our bodies to feel like they need sleep is for our core temperature to go down. Right? So that actually changes in the minutes leading up to sleep. So you want whatever your sleeping environment is to be relatively cool, not cold, but comfortable and cool. That's the first thing. Obviously, it needs to be dark. So if you've got a bunch of windows or big windows or facing a certain direction in your room, then I strongly advise finding a way to cover them up and keep it as dark as possible. I have Again, blackout no, curtains that I love. Yeah, yes, please. All of those. My wife bought those moons ago and I was like, you're crazy. I can sleep like a log. This is, this is silly. And as soon as she bought them, I was like, oh my God, what have I been missing? So, so glad we have those too. Um, so it needs to be cool, needs to be dark. Generally in the 30 minutes to hour, hour sometimes can be tough based on lifestyle and other things, but 30 minutes to an hour before you don't want to be doing something that's mentally arduous or, or really forces a lot of your mental focus. Some of the research on, and what I'm referring to specifically is like screen time. Everybody kind of demonizes the blue light from the TV screen or the phone or the tablet or laptop or whatever. And that is a part of it that does change some of the perception of your, like, what is daytime and is it nighttime and whatever it is, like your brain's understanding of that. What's more, and I think what we need to pay more attention to is how your brain has to focus on whatever is on the screen, right? Uh, 
you know, you're watching the news or, or whatever show that's really interesting or really funny, that stimulation of the brain, even after you shut the screen off, is going to last chemically in your brain well after you shut off the screen or pull yourself away from whatever that is. So 30 minutes to an hour, shut it down, get a routine going where you can engage with some activity, whether it's doing the dishes or just kind of picking up the house or, um, you know, even reading or meditating where it's just this gentle slide into calming your body and your mind physically and emotionally and mentally down from the day. That process can take a lot of different looks. What I encourage folks to do is make a physical list. If it lives upstairs in your noggin, it's going to sort of live there for a little bit and you're going to try and pull it back out and you're going to forget what's on the list. So make a physical list of a few things that are relaxing to you that don't require a lot of attentional focus, whether it's reading or meditating or, you know, doing a little bit of light cleaning up. The list is, is endless effectively. And then prioritize those, some of those things each night, just a few minutes at a time. Doesn't need to be much five or 10 minutes of each of those, you know, couple of things. And your body will start to understand like, Oh, I don't need to be so hyped up for my day, for my kids, for my job, for whatever needs to be done around the house. And just easing your brain into that notion of like, all right, I can kind of decrease my electrical activity right now because that's what you're asking me to do. So that's the environmental stuff. As far as the anxiety stuff, again, we need to make a delineation between what's medically necessary to be treated and what you can kind of do on your own. I, I believe anyone can benefit from help with their own mental health and should take advantage of those benefits. But there are some things you can do on your own. And there's a lot of data. Some of it's anecdotal, but there's, there's gathering data behind meditation as a practice to modulate or, or uh, rein in an individual's anxiety. Anxiety is one of the biggest reasons that folks have trouble getting to sleep and why they have trouble staying asleep because they may wake up at two o'clock in the morning to go use the bathroom and they come back to bed and all of a sudden the things from the past day or things from the next day start reeling just in a circle or typhoon or whatever you want to call it and they can't shut it off, right? That's the biggest reason folks have trouble getting back to sleep. So having that skill, that tool of being able to meditate or pray or whatever you want to say to allow those thoughts just to pass through rather than holding on to them and seeing like, all right, what do I need to do for this? What do I need to do for that? Again, we're back to that notion of causing the brain to have an attentional focus on a thing that turns all the circuitry on. And when you start turning that circuitry on, well, of course, you're, you're, even though it might be dark and cool, your brain thinks it needs to be awake. So if you can have this meditative or prayer practice, you can coax your brain into saying, all right, I still need to be pretty darn calm in this situation, even though I'm physically awake. So does that, that was a really long-winded answer. Does that answer your question? No, I love it. That was great. And, and I really like the analogy of the fact that if you are doing something cognitively demanding, even if that is just, say, watching a movie or a show on television right before bed, your brain is taking a bath and all these chemicals that are exciting. 
And it, it just kind of reminds me of the fact that, yeah, you can turn the TV off, but you know, your, your brain is still taking that, uh, that bath and all those exciting chemicals. It's exactly the same thing. If you were like, well, I'm in the middle of running a workout and I'm going to stop running this workout. And all of a sudden I'm going to feel just normal. Well, of course you're not. Your, your, your legs are still being bathed in lactate and all kinds of exercise byproducts. And so of course I'm, I'm making a, a geeky running analogy here, but it just makes a lot of sense to me that, you know, you are in a state that takes time to come down from. And, and I think that's a really helpful way, uh, of putting it. Um, what is your take on naps? Are, are you someone who thinks naps can be beneficial and productive or do they have the potential to maybe undermine your night's sleep that is upcoming? Yeah, they absolutely do have the potential. I'm, I'm starting off by saying I'm pro-nap. As, as a, a parent, you kind of have to learn to get your snoozes in where you can, if at all possible. But the general rule is, and this, there's research behind this, I don't, this is not my rule, but the general rule is if you do take a nap, it should be prior to two o'clock in the afternoon. And that nap should be an hour or less. Because again, you want to, throughout the course of the day, you're creating or you're accruing a hormone called adenosine that uh, causes something in research called sleep pressure. You want your sleep pressure to be high by the end of the day. So your body just feels it needs the rest. If you're taking an hour nap after two o'clock or even longer, then you're going to basically reset part of the clock on that gathering of accumulation of adenosine. And you're resetting some of that sleep pressure that you've accrued. So if you're going to nap, yes, please, by all means, especially if you feel like you need that, that boost in your cognitive function or physical function later in the day. I've been known to take a little 10, 15 minute snoozes in my car over, over the course of lunch, just because I need a kickstart in the afternoon. Um, but keep the nap short, keep it before two o'clock and let that be it. Right. Just generally, if you get tired in the afternoon, keep moving, keep doing, and you'll, you'll create that sleep pressure that you need. I had a practice when I was training at my peak where on Saturdays after my long run, after lunch, I would take at least a 90 minute nap, but I would try to get upwards of an hour 45, maybe two hours. And my thinking at the time was, well, a sleep cycle is about 90 minutes. So I do want to get in an entire sleep cycle. And I remembered a couple things. Number one, I remembered being so groggy waking up from that long nap. Uh, but number two, I did feel like it was incredibly restorative. And this was when I was running you know, 18 to 22 mile long runs. And then I was trying to jumpstart my recovery because I was a 24 year old and I wanted to go out on Saturday night with my friends. And so it was a way for me to almost balance the two. Yes, I was kind of reducing that sleep pressure, but I was also being realistic with the fact that I'm going to stay up kind of late tonight when I probably shouldn't. And so for me, that was almost like a, a fair balance. And then I would try to go home and you know, get my eight hours, but it would be a little bit on the, on the late side. Is that just a complete sleep disaster in your mind? Or is that kind of a scenario you think? Okay. I would say you're asking for trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I would say you're asking for trouble. You're kind of living on borrowed time there a little bit because you're starting to push that bedtime a little bit late. 
later, sooner or later, you're going to just start waking up early at a time your body or by nature or by force of activity, you're going to start waking up earlier and that sleep at, at night gets shortened, right? So that when that gets contracted again, you're going to lose that quality sleep towards that uh, early aspect of morning. So I appreciate the notion of trying to gain a full sleep cycle. I think that was really smart. And I, I guarantee you, uh, I don't, I don't remember me doing these things, but I promise you I did. I would, in college especially, I would take giant naps in the middle of the day and I would be up until like one or two in the morning and then wake up again at seven to go to class. Like I was shooting myself in the foot without realizing it. So again, those big naps, even though it might've been earlier in the day, it's hugely restorative for your body when you're in those big training cycles but you're potentially kicking yourself in the foot or shooting yourself in the foot by pushing your sleep cycle later, right? When you push that sleep cycle later, odds are you're going to wake up at what's closer to your normal time anyway. And then you're contracting that sleep cycle and say, you don't even have a big workout on the other side of that, that morning, you're going to feel if it's contracted sleep, you're probably going to feel tired and like, ah, oh, I'll just take another. And I'll just get a, a little, another hour, 90 minutes news, get it in. And you get yourself into this habit. Like, all right, I've got the space in my life to create this. So I'm just going to do it. And it just becomes habit forming because now it's just the thing you do, but you haven't still gotten that most restorative aspect of sleep that comes in the early morning. You're still missing that, even though you're catching something back in that like late morning, mid afternoon. I think I'm going to send this back in time about a decade to my prior self and uh, he, he'd, he'd appreciate you chastising him, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Same. Likewise. <laughs> um, now, you did mention 10 to 15 minute naps. And uh, I know for a long time, you can tell by that last story that, you know, I always valued longer naps. Is, is there really anything beneficial in a 10 minute nap? Why are we going to, you know, go to the lengths of trying to take a nap if, we're only going to sleep for 10 minutes. Is there really any physical or mental benefit to such a short length of time? Potentially. Yeah. Um, so those first two phases of sleep, the, the non-rapid eye movement phases one and two, your body can actually move through those very, very quickly. Um, it's the phases three of non-rapid eye movement and then the rapid eye movement phase that generally take much longer. So in 10 minutes, you can slip through phases one and two and almost not directly, but pretty quickly into phase three, where it's that most restorative aspect of sleep, right? Um, so there is a benefit to those, you know, if nothing else and completely anecdotally for myself, right? I feel cognitively better after I've had like a 15 minute snooze or doze than if I wouldn't have done it at all, if I just chugged, you know, uh, a 16 ounce of cold brew, right? I, I'll be jacked up for the rest of the afternoon for sure, but I'll be mentally sharper if I go in my car and take a 15 minute nap. Whether or not you can fall asleep in that amount of time, that's to the individual to, to figure out. Maybe that's some anxiety stuff, but that 15 minute nap can be hugely beneficial. Now, I'm curious, too, if for those time periods where, you know, you maybe have a half an hour to try to get in a nap 
and you lie down and then a half an hour goes by and you think to yourself, I don't think I fell asleep, but you were in that very odd kind of in-between area where, you know, maybe you're like 20% paying attention to what's happening around you, but your brain is just wandering. Is there any value to that? Because I know that I've read that there is. I'm just not sure if, you know, because it's almost more frustrating than anything, right? Yeah. Oh, man. I had one of those the other day. I had a, a run on Sunday morning and after my son went down for a nap time, I was like, I just got to have so I set my alarm for 30 minutes and it was very much one of those things where it's like floating in the ether for like 30 between like awake and asleep for 30 minutes. And I woke up, I was just really annoyed. Like that was dumb. I do that. Um, is there benefit to that? I think so. I think you can still benefit on the other side of the nap from the positive cognitive effects of that, right? Your, your decision-making is going to be a little bit sharper. Your react if we're talking, about sport, your reaction time is going to be a little bit sharper. Um, your mood is going to be better. So you can still get some of those restorative effects without getting into those deep regions or deep zones of your sleep. They may just not be as full as they have been had you been able to get to that zone three or that rapid eye movement phase, which is zone four. So I encourage it. Yes, please. Sometimes you kind of have to take your licks with the naps when they don't happen the way you want to, you know? Yeah, I'll continue to try those naps, even though I'm, <laughs> I'm rarely successful. <laughs> well, me Ryan, this, this has been really fun for me. I, I love talking about things that can have such an outsized impact on not just your training, but more broadly speaking, on your life. And sleep is one of those those great performance multipliers that I think is just so critical for your health, your happiness, your performance, and man, if I could just bottle up a great night of high sleep quality and, and be able to give that to anybody, I wish I could. But uh, Ryan, I really appreciate your expertise and, and all the great material you share, uh, especially on Instagram. And I'm going to include a link to that in our show notes. Uh, is there anything I might have missed on sleep and sleep quality and evaluating your sleep and, and all the many reasons why runners should try their hardest to get better sleep in their lives. Uh, a little bit of a philosophical point. I think as, as endurance athletes, we get caught up in uh, this rise and grind mentality uh, and hustle, hustle, hustle. And there is something to that. I, I don't want to uh, poo-poo that at all, but I think we need to take a, a step back and be honest with ourselves and ask how am I actually functioning in this hustle hard lifestyle that I am trying to achieve? I think you can hustle hard and still get as much sleep as your body actually physiologically needs. Not as much as you tell it that it needs, but as much as it actually needs seven to nine hours every night. You can function on less, but you'd be way less sharp, way less productive. Um, and way less uh, crisp in your workouts if you're not getting adequate sleep. So do a little bit of self-reflection and, and ask yourself, am I just getting caught up in this hustle and grind mentality just for the sake of it uh, and sacrificing my sleep as a result? Or can I hustle hard or even harder while getting the sleep that my body needs? So that's the only other thing I would add. I love it. Well put. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Jason. There it is. 
That was an illuminating discussion of sleep, why we need it, and how to improve it. Don't forget to connect with Ryan on Instagram at Long Run Physio, and check out the Strength Running website for links and resources mentioned in the show. In particular, you can get more advice on recovery from nine elite athletes at strengthrunning.com slash elites. You'll hear from ultra runners, triathletes, track athletes, and everyone in between. I also want to thank our sponsors who are helping make this show possible. Inside Tracker wants to help you do what you love for life. They want you to be a successful, healthy runner for decades. They were founded in 2009 by aging, genetics, and biometric scientists to help you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. Understanding your body's biomarkers from stress hormones to testosterone to vitamin D can help you figure out if you're overtraining or optimally training. But the best part is that they give you personalized, optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers and a host of ways to improve these markers through diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. I've personally gotten two of their ultimate tests, and I'm about to set up my third. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off any test at insidetracker.com slash strength running. Now, this is a big deal because these tests are admittedly not cheap. Stack the odds in your favor and give yourself every advantage with a personalized blood test. Go to insidetracker.com slash strength running to save 25% today. We're also supported by Path Projects. I love a lot of things about Path, from my amazing shirt that has mountains on it, what can I say, I'm from Colorado, to the fact that they separate their shorts and base liners into two distinct products. That means there's no chafing. And with different lengths and fabrics of both, you can customize the type of short you'd like based on your personal preferences and the type of run you're about to start. They use proprietary fabric that's incredibly durable, stretchy, and moisture wicking. So if you ever see me around Denver on the weekend, you'll probably see me in my Path Projects Sykes 5-inch shorts. I call them my adventure shorts. Check out all of their shorts, baseliners, shirts, and headwear at pathprojects.com. That's our show this week. I so appreciate you listening, reviewing the show, and contacting me with your feedback. I do this for you and your support means everything. We'll be in touch soon.